Well, good morning, everyone, on what is definitely a very unusual Good Friday morning. We are normally used to gathering for a, a reflective service before we head home for a big celebration with our families. And today we gather around our computers and our television screens in our lounge rooms and our studies as we prepare for much more modest celebrations later in the day. What are your childhood memories of Good Friday morning services? Ingrained in my mind are memories of the agony and great detail of Jesus' suffering that he endured for us on the cross. I remember images of that crown of thorns piercing his head and blood um, flowing down his forehead. I remember images of the floggings that he endured and the nails being driven into his hands. And today, without wanting to downplay any of that, I want to step back a little bit once again from the cross and marvel at God's big plan. So today, as we did last time I spoke with you, we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. Now, you remember Joseph, don't you? Joseph, the favoured son of Jacob. Joseph, the dreamer, sold by his brothers into slavery and taken to Egypt. Joseph, who faithfully served his master, Potiphar. Joseph, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison. Joseph, the mediator of God's warning to Pharaoh. Joseph, ultimately placed in charge of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh in that land. Joseph, who ultimately saved all of Egypt and all of the sons of Jacob from famine. Joseph, the bearer of God's covenant pro promises upon whom the favour of the Lord rested. You remember that Joseph, don't you? Now, you would think that someone like that who had saved their entire nation would be very hard for the Egyptians to forget. In fact, you might think that someone like that might be deserving of some form of reward. You might think that his descendants might perhaps get some sort of an annuity straight from the treasury of Pharaoh, some sort of other special privileges, perhaps reserved camel parking at the pyramids or something. But the book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph, revered by the Egyptians. And by the time the book of Exodus begins, Egypt has forgotten all about him. How could this be? Well, you see, Joseph lived and ruled in Egypt a period of about 80 years, roughly. And during that time, he served under only two pharaohs. By contrast, from the time of Joseph's death to the birth of Moses at the beginning of Exodus, a period of 400 years, roughly, elapses. And during that time, 50 different pharaohs reign. It was a time of great instability in the history of Egypt. And it was during this time that Egypt was invaded by the Semites, who were descendants of Noah's son, Shem, 
and they oppressed the Egyptian population for about 150 years. Meanwhile, the favour of the Lord rested upon the Israelites who had remained in Egypt after the famine, who were prospering and who were multiplying like rabbits. And so it is therefore unsurprising, given the events in that period between Genesis and Exodus, that the book of Exodus opens with a new pharaoh who knows nothing about the nation-saving contribution of the Israelites in their midst and who is determined that the nation of Egypt will never again be oppressed by a foreign nation amongst them. And this pharaoh responds to the perceived crisis of the growing strength and prosperity of the Israelites among them by pronouncing a death sentence on their firstborn sons and enslaving the remaining Jewish population. A Hebrew baby is found floating in the river by Pharaoh's daughter. He is one of these Jewish infants that must be killed, all the baby boys. He is, of course, Moses, chosen by God to lead his people out of Egypt and towards the promised land. And at God's command, he and his brother Aaron go to Pharaoh and demand that he let God's people go so that they may worship the Lord. Ten times Pharaoh refuses, and with each refusal, God sends a plague as proof that the one true God is greater than the many gods of these Egyptians. And I'm sure you're going to hear much more about all of that when we begin our series in Exodus later in the year, so we won't dwell on that today. After the ninth plague, the plague of darkness is lifted from the land. Pharaoh, who himself is worshipped by the Egyptians as, as a god, resumes his bargaining with the Lord and he puts a new deal on the table. The deal is that the Israelites can leave, provided they leave all their animals behind, presumably since Egypt's own livestock had been decimated by the previous plagues. Moses effectively says no deal to that because Israel's livestock are required as the sacrifices for the Lord. Enraged, Pharaoh effectively ushers in the final plague himself when he commands Moses, get out of my sight and make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. And Moses' response is priceless. Just as you say, I will never appear before you again. And he never does. And so the scene is set for the last great plague upon Egypt, known as the death of the firstborn or the Passover. In Exodus 11, God provides Moses with the details of this tenth and final plague, a plague of judgment that he will send on the Egyptians and their false gods. At midnight, the Lord would pass through the land, bringing death to the firstborn of each family and even the firstborn of all their cattle. In Exodus 12, he details what the Israelites must do to avoid this plague of judgment themselves. They must take a lamb from the flock on the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Abib. It had to be a year old lamb, a male lamb in its prime, a perfect lamb without defect. And each lamb should be taken care of by the family until the 14th day. Then the community of Israel would gather together and slaughter the lambs at twilight. Then the Israelites were to take the blood and put it on the top and the sides 
of the door frames of their house and they would stay inside until the morning. And when the Lord passed through the land at night, he would pass over those homes with the painted door frames, those homes whose frames had been covered by the blood of that lamb. And everyone who stepped out of those doorways in the morning would be free because they'd been covered by the blood of the lamb which spared them from judgment. Exodus 12 goes on to detail further instructions for an annual commemoration of this event. Passover was commemorated in the Sinai wilderness a year after Israel left Egypt. It was celebrated when Israel entered the promised land. It was celebrated in the days of the kings. It was celebrated after the return of the Jews from exile in Babylon. It was still being celebrated in the days of Jesus and it is still celebrated today by the Jewish community. It is the oldest continuously observed religious festival in existence today. But Passover is central not only to the Jewish identity because the history of the Jewish people can be traced through it, it is also central to Christians because in so many ways it points to Jesus as our Passover lamb. And so today we're going to look a little bit more closely about the details of Passover and as we do, we're going to be keeping our eyes open for any similarities we might find in the gospel record of the account of Jesus' death. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, we're introduced to John the Baptist and his role as a witness. Twice in that first chapter, John sees Jesus approaching and exclaims, look, the Lamb of God. Now, I believe that all of the Gospel accounts support that claim, but John's Gospel really makes it obvious So today, as we work our way through the Passover regulations and the account of Jesus' death on the cross, we're going to do a fair bit of flipping backwards and forwards between the Exodus account in Exodus chapter 12 and John's account of Jesus' death, which is around about John chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, it might be worthwhile if you could get two markers, bookmarks, bits of paper, whatever, two fingers, and put them in there between Exodus chapter 12 and John chapter 19. We're going to begin at Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So important was this Passover event going to be that God was going to completely rearrange their calendar around it so that at the top of the Jewish calendar, the very first festival of the year would be Passover and it would be in the first month of the year. What month was that going to be? Well, you've got to read on a little bit to find that in um, Exodus 13 verse 4. We're told that this was the month of Abib, and Abib was later renamed Nisan after the Babylonian captivity. So in Nisan, something special was going to happen. And we resume reading from chapter 12, verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for his household. Then we can skip over the next bit about the size of each household and whether sharing with a neighbour is required. 
Verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So these perfect lambs were to be taken out of the flock on the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan and were to be kept until 14th day of Nisan, presumably sufficient time to confirm that the lamb was indeed without defect. Now, instead of just reading that, I want you to imagine doing that. Imagine choosing a lamb, bringing it back to your house and taking care of it for four days. Four days would be long enough to become personally attached to that lamb. After four days, that lamb would no longer be just any old lamb. That lamb would be your lamb. And the costly nature of this, this sacrifice would be evident when your lamb would die in your place. On the 14th day of Nisan, the whole community would come together and the lambs would be slaughtered in public view in the temple at twilight. Then what happens? Verse 7 says, They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they will eat the lambs. And then they're further instructed to roast the lambs over a fire and they're specifically instructed not to eat any of it raw or boiled. It must be roasted. If we flip over now to the Gospel of John, we're going to begin at chapter 12, back a little bit from the actual crucifixion. Chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and we read six days before the Passover and that's all we need from there. Now skip forward to chapter 12, verse 12 the beginning of the section about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The next day, a great crowd had come for the feast. So the next day was the next day after the previous day, which we were told in verse 1 was six days before Passover. So the next day when Jesus is entering on the donkey, is therefore five days before Passover. On that day, Jesus entered Jerusalem. What happened to him after that? Well, John doesn't go into a lot of detail about what Jesus faced. His focus is more about Jesus' important teachings during that time, but all of the other gospel writers do. And they tell us that every day Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. So they questioned his authority. They looked for ways to arrest him. They even sent spies to try and catch him out with some of the things he was saying. Then ultimately he's arrested and he faces even further scrutiny from the council of the elders, including the chief priests, Pilate and Herod. So in those days, between the 10th and the 14th of Nisan, both Jesus and the Passover lambs were being examined for defect. And when none could be found, remember, neither Herod nor Pilate could find any basis for charges against Jesus. When no defect was found, both Jesus 
and the Passover lambs were sacrificed, and the sacrifice was a public sacrifice. The lambs in the temple and Jesus at a place called Golgotha. According to Jewish regulation, the slaughter of the Passover lambs for the annual commemoration of Passover took place in the temple at 3 p.m. in the afternoon on the 14th of Nisan, and they were eaten at nightfall, which by the Jewish calendar was considered the next day. Jesus died on the 14th of Nisan, and we know this because John goes to great lengths to state that his death occurred on the day of preparation. He repeats it three times. You'll find it in chapter 19, verse 14, chapter 19, verse 31, and chapter 19, verse 42. And this was not just any old day of preparation for any regular Sabbath. This was a day of preparation for a special Sabbath, we're told in 1931, presumably the Passover. Luke records for us the exact time of Jesus' death. He says it was now about the sixth hour, i.e. midday, since they were counting from 6am. And darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said that, he breathed his last breath. So from the sixth hour, darkness comes over the land and it lasts until the ninth hour when Jesus died. The sixth hour is midday. So the ninth hour when Jesus died is 3 p.m., precisely the time when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. The Israelites were instructed to take some blood from their slaughtered lamb and to put it on their door frames of their houses where they would eat the lambs. They were to take the slaughtered lambs and roast them with fire. Now, having already endured several floggings, the blood from Jesus' back would no doubt have stained the wooden beams of the cross. The blood of the lambs applied to the wooden beams of the door frames of the homes of the Israelites would spare them from the judgment and the wrath of God that would befall the Egyptians that night. The blood of Jesus spilled onto those wooden beams of the cross would likewise spare us from judgment and the wrath of God. Throughout the Bible, fire is used as a symbol of the judgment of God. And as they were, as they roasted over the fire, those Passover lambs symbolically experienced the wrath of God. But for Jesus, it was literal. In taking on the sin of the world, he also took on the wrath due for us, which is why he cries out from the cross those well-known words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is so much in the events of the Passover that point to the Messiah as the true Passover lamb. And I encourage you to read the Exodus account for yourself today as you think about the Lord's sacrifice this Good Friday. Yet still today, many will read the ancient account of the Passover and see it as just ancient history, worth remembering for the sake of history, but of little value other than that. Still others will read it and scoff at the suggestion that these Passover lambs 
might prefigure Jesus as our true Passover lamb. The similarity of the dates, they'll brush off as mere coincidence. The public killing's just a matter of chance. And as for the roasting of the lamb, symbolising the fiery wrath of God, oh, come on, they might say. You don't really expect me to believe something as far-fetched as that, do you? But some, steeped in the tradition of the Passover, saw in Jesus the sacrificial lamb, the one who would take away the sin of the world. And when they saw it, I believe it changed their worlds. John the Baptist recognised him and he couldn't help but point him out to others. Look, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I believe all the other gospel writers saw it too, but I think perhaps John wrote his description of the crucifixion with those historians and sceptics in mind. Because if you had any trouble joining the dots on what I've said so far, John is about to join some dots for you and he does it in great big thick permanent marker as we conclude with a few brief thoughts on our passage for today. So if you'd like to turn to John chapter 19, we'll pick up the crucifixion story from verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. These things happen so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. You can almost feel the emotion in the voice of the gospel writer in those two final verses. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies. Why? Why is he testifying? So that you may believe. You can almost hear him saying, see what we saw, know what we know, believe that he came, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you're still not sure, look at what Scripture said about him. Not one of his bones will be broken and they will look on the one they have pierced. See that it happened, he says, exactly as it was prophesied. Not wanting the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders had asked Pilate to consent to having the legs broken. Now, this would have caused the weight of the bodies to fall down on themselves, making breathing even more difficult than it already was and hastening death. Pilate consented 
and the legs of the man either side of Jesus were broken, but when the soldiers came to Jesus, they found he was already dead, and so none of his bones were broken. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his body with a spear, simultaneously fulfilling two prophecies. One of those prophecies comes from Zechariah, and the other is taken directly from the Exodus account of the Passover commemoration. So if you turn back one final time to Exodus chapter 12, this time beginning from verse 46, it, being the lamb, must be eaten inside one house, take none of the meat outside the house, do not break any of the bones, the whole community of Israel must celebrate it. These things happened, said John, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is our Lord, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the true Passover Lamb. John the Baptist recognised him. Do you? Just like the death of the Passover lambs in the temple, the crucifixion of Jesus was very much a public event. We know some of the people who were there. There was a whole crowd of Marys. Mary, his earthly mother. Mary's sister. Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Mary Magdalene and the disciple John. But they were only part of a much larger crowd that had followed him there. Some of them mocked him. Some of them sneered at him. And others wailed and wept for him. In contrast to the very public death of the lambs in the temple, each Israelite family was required to individually apply that blood from their own lamb to the doorframe of their own home. No one else could do it for them. It was a very personal and a very visible sign of their faith. And in this act of applying the blood to their doorframes, the innocent lamb would become their substitute. And whilst they remained inside under the covering of the blood of their lamb, the judgment of the Lord would pass over them on that one momentous night in the history of Israel. And the next morning, all who walked out through those blood-stained doors found themselves free from the bondage of slavery. Jesus may have died a very public death, but the decision to come under the covering of his blood is very much an individual, private decision. In painting the door frames of their homes, the ancient Israelites showed their true colours to all of Egypt, and we must show ours. Accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, and we too will avoid the judgment of the Lord because the Lamb of God becomes our substitute and endures the wrath of God for sin on our behalf. If you haven't already done that, then make today the day you show your true colours. Make tonight your one momentous night in the history of you. Put yourself under the covering of his blood shed at the cross and walk free forever. But if that is perhaps something you've done many years ago, then that's worth celebrating. 
God said of the Passover to the Israelites in Exodus 12, 14, This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And that is what we do each Good Friday, is it not? We remember the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf and we celebrate that we have been declared righteous because of his blood over us and we give thanks for Jesus, our true Passover lamb. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the wholeness and completeness of your word through which we can trace your plan being fulfilled through all of history. Thank you, Lord, that my right standing with God does not depend on me continually completing sacrifices for myself. Precious Lamb of God, thank you for dying the death that I deserve because of my sin. Because of you, that great curtain in the temple that set apart the Holy of Holies as your dwelling place has been torn in two. And I can not only approach, but have a living and vital relationship with you. The Holy God. Thank you that all who walk under the covering of your shed blood are like the Israelites on that first Passover free and spared from judgment. Because of your sacrifice, I am a new creation, a new creation in Christ, and my future is secure. Help me to recognise today the enormity of what you have done for me on the cross. Help me to die to myself and to live for you. Amen. Well, whatever your celebrations may look like today, no matter how modest they are, may you find time to reflect on the provision of the Father, on the purity of the Lamb that he provided, on the power in the shed blood of that Lamb and on the enormity of the sacrifice that was made on your behalf. May you stand in awe of the God we serve who from the beginning of time has held all of this in his hands. Amen.